Well, I'll start out by apologizing to those of you that normally follow live on uh, our Sunday morning services. Uh, twice now I've tried to record the service and twice now because of my uh, lack of knowledge when it comes to technology, um, it has failed. So this is attempt number three and I'm sitting here on my couch on my own and uh, maybe with any luck I'll get a chance to preach this message a fourth time but uh, we'll see how this goes uh, and again my apologies to those that try to follow live Sunday morning but let's go ahead and pick up um, for those of you continuing in the series um, for those of you that have been following along with our series in Exodus we looked last week at the last part of Exodus chapter 4 and we looked at some of the difficult ideas, including God saying that he will harden Pharaoh's heart and kill Pharaoh's son. We also tried to work out what is happening in the mysterious story which takes place in verses 24 through 26. In this passage, God confronts Moses as he is making his way to Egypt with his family and is prepared to take Moses' life. That is, until Moses' wife, Zipporah, steps in and circumcises their son, at which point God lets Moses go. Upon their arrival in Egypt, Moses and Aaron gather the leaders of Israel and explain to them that God has met with them, and, and then they show them the signs given to Moses by God. The Israelite leaders receive the message with joy and prepare to confront Pharaoh. We also drew some principles out of this difficult scripture. I picked four. One, as Christians, regardless of how high or low our calling seems to us, we must not neglect the seemingly little details of life as we obey the voice of God. Two, the people of God are loved by him as a firstborn son, not merely as a slave or vassal. Three, those that proclaim the gospel must first live the gospel. The message has no power outside of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in the words and life of the messenger. And four, as believers, our hope is in the salvation of God as found in the ultimate redemption found alone in Jesus Christ. Now, on to today's message, which I've entitled, Light of Hope and Clouds of Suffering. Let's read together Exodus chapter 5 and the first 14 verses. This is the word of God. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord nor will I let Israel go. So they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go three days' journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from their work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, Look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, You shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. 
Let them go and gather straw for themselves, and you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men, that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. And the taskmasters of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people, saying, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go, get yourselves straw where you can find it. Yet none of your work will be reduced. So the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble instead of straw. And the taskmasters forced them to hurry, saying, Fulfill your work, your daily quota, as when there was straw. Also, the officers of the children of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick, both yesterday and today, as before? Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we consider this passage, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to the truth that you have for us here. We pray that your word would be living and powerful in our hearts as we move forward in this difficult passage, but this encouraging passage. And we thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get into today's message, I just wanted to remind everyone that I didn't choose this passage based on current events in our news today. I chose to do the book of Exodus months ago. And Providence has given us this scripture to consider today through no planning of my own. So let's look at the first three verses. The first request is brought before Pharaoh. This is Moses' first confrontation with Pharaoh. It does not go so well, but God saw it coming and prepared Moses' heart for it. Everything Pharaoh does and says gives us a picture of the plans and schemes of the evil one, how he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Biblically speaking, Pharaoh is the archetype of evil and tyrannical conduct in this world. As Christians, we would be wise to study Pharaoh's response to Moses and Aaron and keep our eyes wide open for those that follow the kind of slavery and destruction shadowed by Pharaoh and commit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit in resisting Pharaoh's spirit working in our own lives. With that, let's begin. I think it took a great deal of courage for Moses and Aaron to present themselves before Pharaoh. And the difference between courage and cowardice is not how you feel fear inwardly, but how you respond to fear outwardly. Years ago, my wife and I took our kids to the swimming pool in Prince George. This was before the local pool was built. Timothy was just a little guy, maybe four or five years old, I think, and we had just given the warning that it was almost time to go. Timothy wanted to go off the diving board before we left, so he climbed the ladder, walked to the end of the board. He looked down, and after contemplating his existence for a few moments, turned around climbed down the ladder, and came to where my wife and I were again. I told him that we were going soon, and that if he didn't jump off the diving board now, he would regret it. So he made his way back over to the diving board, 
climbed the ladder, went to the end of the board, looked death in the face, and jumped in. Then he did it again, and again, and again, and we didn't leave as soon as we would have liked. As a very brief aside, and only as an observation from everyday life, how you respond to fear becomes a habit. If you respond to fear by backing away and giving in once, it is immeasurably more difficult to respond with courage the next time. So always do what you know is right, especially when you are afraid, because that can be a habit too. When Timothy stood at the end of that diving board, he felt a degree of fear. He didn't replace his fear with courage. He overcame his fear with courage, and the difference matters. He lived with no regrets, and from that moment on, he was able, consciously or not, to live with courage as his standard rather than fear in that area of his life, and I think in other areas of his life as well. Moses and Aaron almost certainly experienced fear before confronting Pharaoh. But the only time a person can truly show courage is when he is afraid. Pharaoh was no public servant representing his people. He was the authority in Egypt, ruling over his people. His power and authority were supreme. In fact, they were considered divine. And there was no constitution or higher law or even, or even anything remotely equal to him in power and authority. With a word, Pharaoh could have had these two imprisoned or even put to death for simply coming before him. Moses grew up in the royal courts of Egypt. He knew this. But he also knew that the living God, Jehovah, had instructed him to go before Pharaoh and went with him. Before God and his word, even Pharaoh's power over all Egypt and its people was as nothing. And the demand was made, let my people go. The ultimate demand God made to Pharaoh through his messengers, Moses and Aaron, was freedom for his people. The people of Israel belonged to him, not Pharaoh, and therefore they should be free. Those who belong to God should be free, not bound. Moses does not ask Pharaoh to let God's people go so they can do whatever their heart desires out in the wilderness. This would not be freedom, but just a different sort of bondage to licentiousness. Moses asks Pharaoh to let God's people go so that they can worship and serve him, which is perfect freedom. The deliverance from sin, which God desires to work for his people, is, in fact, a change from one service to another. God delivers men from the slavery of sin leading to death to the service of God leading to life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The choice isn't whether or not you will serve. But who will you serve? The choice has consequences in this life, but there are eternal consequences as well. Ephesians chapter 5 verses 8 through 10 reads, 
For you were once in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. The Israelites could not offer the necessary sacrifices in the presence of Egyptians. The Egyptians had every right to worship their gods in the presence of the Hebrews because they were in Egypt. But the reverse did not apply, and this is why Moses and Aaron requested a three-day journey into the wilderness. Think of this spiritually. The Christian cannot offer the sacrifice of worship while still in slavery to sin. God must bring the Christian out of the bondage of this world into the freedom of Christ, and then the Christian can worship him in spirit and in truth. Of course, this made me consider whether the three-day journey was significant. Was God pointing us toward the death and resurrection of Christ? I'll let you wrestle with the scripture on that account. C.H. Spurgeon once preached the following in one of his sermons. The demand was not made to Pharaoh make their tasks less heavy, or make the whip less cruel, or put kinder taskmasters over them. No, but let them go free. Christ did not come into the world merely to make our sin more tolerable, but to deliver us right away from it. He did not come to make our lusts less mighty, but to put all these things far away from his people and work out a full and complete deliverance. And I might add to Spurgeon's thoughts, do we as Christians sometimes pray for too little, thinking that it might be easier for God to do? Rather than pray for unparalleled liberty from sin, do we pray for a sprinkle of grace or a tiny measure of mercy? What is it that we think God is not capable of doing? Ask the Lord for much, and then be content with what he gives, be it sufficient grace or small blessings, to carry us through to the abundant life he has promised in Christ. The most true statement Pharaoh made in this entire passage is this, I do not know the Lord. When reading verse 2, I think it can be helpful to our understanding to recognize that when the Bible uses the word LORD in all capitals, and if you have your Bible in front of you, go ahead and check that in verse 2, it is the special name of God, Jehovah or Yahweh. When read like this, it can shed some light on this passage, I think. Let's go ahead and read it like that. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says Jehovah, God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is Jehovah, that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Jehovah, nor will I let Israel go. Pharaoh knew of many gods, called by many names. He even considered himself to be a god, but he did not know Jehovah or Yahweh, and he did not acknowledge his ownership of Israel. So, naturally, he refused Moses and Aaron. 
Pharaoh spoke here in verse 2 under the common understanding of that day that every place and every people had a god or sometimes many gods. And he supposed that Jehovah might be the deity of and limited to the Israelites to whom he as an Egyptian was under no kind of obligation. Pharaoh believed himself to be the sovereign lord over all Egypt and there were none superior. The Egyptians and other nations were at this time sunk in idolatry and knowing nothing of the true God, the creator and possessor of heaven and earth and everything that exists within them, they believed each nation had a God or gods of its own. Pharaoh imagined Jehovah to be like one of the gods of Egypt or some other country, a mere local deity, whom therefore it neither concerned him to know nor to obey. It is in the wonders that were about to be unleashed that Pharaoh would learn to his sorrow that Jehovah was not only the God of the Hebrews, but of all the world, having sovereign power over all things. Why three days journey, we might ask. We touched on this already, but I think it bears repeating. Worship of the true God of Israel does not take place in Egypt. In the same way, only those that are freed from the slavery of sin can worship the Father, and this only by the work of Christ. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus says, All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Clark writes in his commentary, From the foundation of the world, the true religion required sacrifice. Before, under, and after the law, this was deemed essential to salvation. Under the Christian dispensation, Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and being still the Lamb slain before the throne in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, no man comes unto the Father, but by him. So the request is made, and now we see that the response of Pharaoh is only to increase the burden. The response of Pharaoh to Moses and Aaron reveals a great deal about mankind. From the playground bully to those we read about in our history books, the fingerprints of the enemy working through our fallen human natures are everywhere. Let's just briefly outline Pharaoh's response to remind ourselves not only of what to keep our eyes open for in others, but also to reflect on our own responses when faced with a challenge. So let's look at a series of four things that Pharaoh said. The first one is this. Why do you take the people from their work? Why waste your time with spiritual service when there are practical things to do? Why set aside time for worship and service of God when there are bricks to be made? Worship of God will only replace time money could have been made. Instead of wasting your morning praying, you could have made $20. While you spent your evening in Bible reading, you could have made another $20. That's $40 a day. In a 30-day month, 
That's $1,200. Attend to the physical and never mind about the spiritual. All that might be true if you disregard who gives you the ability to work. In the previous verse, Moses and Aaron explained to Pharaoh that the worship and service of God must not be neglected lest God bring plague or the sword. You will get few bricks from the person who cannot work due to illness and none from the dead. In summary, Pharaoh's statement reveals the primacy of the physical over the spiritual in a system that does not know God. Pharaoh's second statement is, The people of the land are many now. So furthermore, in his mind, there are a lot of you, and every moment you're not working, it's costing me money. The third thing Pharaoh says is, For they are idle, therefore they cry out. Beginning in verse 6, we see that Pharaoh's concern has shifted from the practical, everyday issues around the request of Moses and Aaron to a spirit of vindictiveness. Reading verses 6 through 9, one gets a real sense of how Pharaoh is using God's request for the release of his people to punish the Hebrews. He doesn't want to lose any production. That could cost him money. So, to hammer home his point and to turn the people against Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh multiplies the sufferings of the Israelites. Load them down with more burdens, he says, if they think they can do what they want rather than what I want. I have to point out the depth of the spiritual application of what is happening here, because the more we dig, the closer we get to the source and motivation of Pharaoh as a shadow or a type of the enemy of our souls today. Egypt is a type or picture or shadow of this world, the world as it is in opposition to the kingdom of God, the world in which dwell those who are still slaves to sin. Think about Satan's role in all this. The Holy Spirit makes a demand of Satan, let this person whom I love go. The response of Satan, the archetypal tyrant, is no. In fact, I will keep them impossibly busy so that they either have no time to consider the hope of deliverance or they learn to despise the person that has demanded their redemption. The accuser says they are lazy. That is the only reason they have time to think about their eternal souls. If they would commit themselves entirely to the building of Egypt, then the requests, no, the demands of God can be disregarded forgotten, and despised. The fourth and final thing that we'll look at that Pharaoh said is this, let them not regard false words. And this brings us right to the root and heart of Pharaoh and every tyrant, from the playground bully to those in our history books. Look at the end of verse 9. Pharaoh says, of the words of God, <clears throat> Let them not regard false words. Let me put this phrase in a slightly different way. Has God indeed 
said. The words of the serpent to Eve way back in the garden. Questioning the word of God. Doubting the word of God. Openly declaring the word of God as a lie. These are the tactics of him who seeks to destroy man, body, and soul. You stand unwaveringly on the word of God, or you will stumble on the wiles of the devil. So let's look at the last five verses quickly, verses 10 through 14 of our passage. There's orders and there's punishments. Pharaoh, as the supreme ruler of Egypt, has no trouble getting his subordinates to give his orders and execute his punishments. No more straw, he says. It is very interesting that Pharaoh drastically increases the workload of the Israelites, but demands the same quota of brick from them that they made previously. Pharaoh is not concerned with the quality of the work. He is simply wanting to punish the Hebrew slaves for the actions of Moses and Aaron who were simply obeying the voice of God. One would think that Pharaoh would concern himself with the building of his empire, but he has so been blinded already by thoughts of revenge that he cannot see the damage he is inflicting on his own country and his own people. Revenge is a powerfully blinding emotion that tends to make a person incapable of seeing anything but the object of his hatred. This means that the immediate effect of the words of Moses was to make life much more difficult for the Hebrews, not better. If you think anything like I do, you would like to believe that as Moses and Aaron are faithful, in carrying out God's commands, life would get better and better incrementally, inch by inch, for the Israelites living in bondage so that they could have a ray of hope and a glimpse that victory was on its way. But the truth of the matter, more often than not, is that the saying, it's always darkest before the dawn, holds true in reality. That's why it has become a common saying. When the Apostle Peter was writing to the Jewish Christians of his day, and life was becoming increasingly bitter for them, he wrote this, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Salvation is the hope of the Christian when life grows increasingly wearisome. And tiring. There are layers of suffering in our passage today. Pharaoh at the top commanded the Egyptian taskmasters underneath him to carry out his vindictive order. Then the Egyptian taskmasters 
commanded the Israelite officers, these were Hebrew men, under them, to see that the order was carried out. These officers, or scribes, kept a record of production, and, in spite of the Hebrew slaves' best efforts, fell short of the required quota. So, the Egyptian taskmasters punished the Hebrew officers, probably by beating them on the soles of their feet, if history tells us anything, and asked them why they were falling behind. The taskmasters couldn't punish every Israelite, so they singled out the leaders and punished them. I don't know if you can sense it in the text, but it almost seems like the taskmasters enjoyed inflicting suffering on the Hebrews. It seemed everyone, including Pharaoh, knew that it was physically impossible for the slaves to meet this new demand. But of course, the purpose of the demand wasn't for the betterment of anything. It was to break the will of the people and cause divisions in the Hebrew population. Pharaoh wanted the brickmakers and the straw gatherers to be divided. He wanted the slaves and the officers to be divided. And most of all, he wanted everyone divided from Moses and Aaron. Let's think about this spiritually again. There is no possibility to meet the demands of the God of this world. The demands of sin are never quite satisfied. And if God begins to move in your heart, the demands of sin will only increase and become all-consuming. There will be no setting free of slaves if Satan can manage it. And if the accuser must divide people to accomplish his purpose in keeping them under the yoke of slavery, he will divide them. Perhaps this is one of the reasons the Apostle Paul urges followers of Christ to be united in the truth. Life was so much easier for the Hebrews before Moses and Aaron showed up with the message of deliverance. In the same way, many of us were comfortable in our sin before the Holy Spirit got a hold of us. A Christian person once said, I never knew what a sinner I was until I became a Christian. For many of us, the choice came down to being comfortable in slavery or uncomfortable in liberty. It is not easy for us in our pride to acknowledge what we really are before God. His piercing gaze and the light of his word reveal who we are in his presence. But that discomfort must come before redemption. God knows what and who you are already. Your discomfort isn't coming from God learning your secrets for the first time, but from you learning your guilt before him. But once we have believed and repented of our sin, we experience perfect liberty and eternal life in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this rich passage of scripture. We pray that it would penetrate our hearts, which are sometimes so hardened. We pray that it would motivate us to live outside of fear, to live in courage, to live 
with courage, your courage in our lives, overcoming the fear that the enemy is trying to thrust upon us. Help us to be sensitive to the sin in our lives so that we can confess it and turn our backs on it and walk in cleanness before you. Father, we thank you uh, for all that you have given to your people and all that you have promised to your people. Help us to be in your word and to see these promises moment by moment as your spirit works in our hearts, revealing the scriptures to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.